Good morning, everyone. I'm Mel. And I'm Pippa. We're the creators and editors of Earth Rights, the podcast and platform that focuses on the connection between human rights and environmental issues. Just a quick message before we begin. The views and research presented on this podcast are either our own or referenced on our website, www.earthrights.co.uk. We generally always record a few weeks ahead of release, so some facts or situations may have changed during this time. Hi everyone, welcome to episode 7 of Earthrights. Today we're going to be talking about the so-called green recovery from COVID. So firstly, just to clear things up a bit, what is a recovery? So after any crisis, because of the loss of life or the breakdown of life as we know it, um, and due to the diminished economy and the diminished diminished resources, there's always an opportunity to reassess how we did things before, see what worked and what didn't work and what led us to be in this situation. Therefore, the opportunity to build back a green recovery we have a chance to think about what the new normal will look like. So in light of this, first of all, we're going to just sort of break down the timeline of events in COVID-19. Obviously, we were all there living through it. But um, yeah, Mel, do you want to kind of explain things in an environmental sense? Yeah, sure. So in March 2020, which is now crazily nearly a year ago, um, life across the world came to a standstill and we were given the rules to stay at home Um, and obviously because of this the world actually did officially stop and therefore the environment and the planet was given a a break Um, so air pollution decreased because of um, decreasing levels of traffic and rivers became less polluted And just in general, CO2 levels went down. I mean, I'm sure the birds were pretty happy um, and they were certainly singing more. When we look back on all of the things that we thought were huge improvements, we now realise they weren't actually so significant. So when the lockdown was eased, um, air pollution immediately increased. And in many areas, it actually was a lot worse than before, probably because many people were opting to travel by car instead of using public transport, naturally fearing for their safety in like public transport modes. Um, and our CO2 emissions only went down by 7%. Global net human-caused emissions of carbon dioxide need to fall by a total of 45% from 2010 levels by 2030, if we're going to actually reach net zero by 2050. So obviously that's quite a, a huge target to be meeting and we're, we're clearly not getting there, um, even with lockdowns and coming to a standstill. Yeah, we're still extremely far away from reaching these targets. This can make our targets and the ambition to reach net zero and to um, mitigate the climate crisis a really far away and pessimistic ambition Uh, especially given that last year we felt really positive about it all. But at Earthrights, we really believe that the change is possible, real changes in human behaviour and in the long-term lessons that we've learned from this pandemic. Um, And from that, we're going to just look at a few of the major lessons that we've learned. So Pippa, what would you say are the most important ones? Yeah, so I think when I was thinking about this before the podcast, I think there's three main lessons that I personally have taken away from the pandemic. 
Um, and I think the first one is that it's shown us that our systems and politics and global systems just aren't working. Like the, we're in this situation because powerful businesses and people have been able to do things with, with a lack of accountability for their actions. And it's just shown us that our current lifestyles aren't sustainable because it's led to you know this awful situation. Um, and I think also for me, COVID's kind of highlighted our mortality and it's highlighted that, our, as I said, our current uh, patterns of behaviour just aren't sustainable. Like the, the, the pandemic isn't necessarily caused by climate change, but like, as I said, researchers have highlighted that our incessant enrichment on nature is making the risk of pandemics worse and our interconnectedness through globalization and air travel, which is obviously amazing, but this fast paced lifestyle has made it harder to stop the spread of these pandemics when you know it's complicated to close borders and all these things. And I think especially in a country like the UK, where we feel largely immune to any kind of impact, negative impact that nature has, like we don't experience um, natural disasters in the form of like hurricanes or um, tornadoes or tsunamis um, and I think a couple of a few years ago we would never have even been able to fathom that a, a, something as small as a virus could bring you know our whole country to a, to a standstill so I think there's a really important lesson there that you know against nature we're largely powerless and we might feel disconnected from nature in our cities and our high rise buildings, um, but like we're all part of the puzzle. And I think it's kind of shown us, well, it's shown me anyway, that nature has the upper hand. Yeah, like it's, you know, humans can do so much destruction, but nature is the, the thing we should be more scared about. Like with the climate crisis and the the change in like, like, as we know, we'll see increased flooding, higher temperatures, increased risk of natural disasters with the climate crisis. And like, that's what we should be scared of, not, you know, like that's the, the bigger threat here um, because we can't build up a wall to protect ourselves from that. And yeah, I think it's just an important lesson. And like many scientists have said that the pandemic is just like a a tiny fraction of what's to come if we continue on our current trajectory so it's just a reminder that we need to listen and the way we currently continue on this unsustainable consumption and growth and development it's leading to this destruction of nature and yeah we need to kind of hone that back and like reconnect with nature in that way yeah I guess we um <laughs> we can't immunize against floods or something like that like actually a virus is probably um the easiest thing for humans to defend against because it's infiltrating us as as humans but um natural disasters won't be doing that yeah and it's kind of like almost this like ominous look of you know what is to come if we don't act now and it's just just shows us that you know we're not immortal and in the face of nature like mm -hmm. yeah it has the upper hand I think is the big lesson um, and I think finally I've also learned that the climate crisis is you know it's like up to all of us we all have a duty to care for the planet and care for other humans and it's kind of we can't just sit back and watch as this unfolds because like we you know we all have a duty to 
for future generations to kind of do as much as we can to prevent pandemics like this from occurring in the future. Yeah, this this reminds me of um, <laughs> the stark message I sent my mum the other day when we were on our on a walk, um, and we walked past a farm. Um, and there were loads of cows and they were really sweet. And we were having this kind of nice moment um, where I put my hand out for them to nuzzle and my mum was doing the same. Um, mm. And I don't know, so suddenly I was overcome with this feeling of sorrow and sadness. And I turned to my mum and said, oh, well, these cows won't be alive for long or much longer. And she walked off in a half saying that I'd really ruined the moment. And I know I did, but I was just trying to, I guess, take it in for myself and show to her that um, the, the things that we appreciate at the moment or that we see um, and that we feel close to, like animals, like nature, if, if we have that opportunity to, um, that it won't just be there in the future if we don't do something about it and like mm -hmm. something like t maybe taking on vegetarianism or veganism we all have the power to make small individual choices um, and those can have a, a big impact on the way that government responds to um, us. And I think it's like you know I completely get your mum's point that you ruined the moment or whatever but it is like you know it's the truth and I guess like things can't always be like lovely and it's like ignorance is bliss or is it because it doesn't seem it doesn't seem fair to just like you know see everything as like lovely like I often say things like that to my mum will be watching like um an animal documentary like David Attenborough and she'll be like oh I can't watch the penguin die and I'm like it's sad but you eat chicken like <laughs> beef like you're eating it right now and she's like oh shut up and I'm like it's the truth like yeah. you want to be that like annoying person but I guess to your family you're kind of allowed to be um yeah and yeah I think it's an important message um I think also another massive thing in lockdown like as well as the lessons we can learn you know a year into this pandemic like we can reflect and look at what we've learned but also I think like the pandemic has changed our behavior and I think that that's something that sh we should like discuss and is really important so yeah Mel what how do you think it, it's changed um, well the the most smile inducing one for me <laughs> is that cycling has increased by 200 percent um since the first lockdown so bikes I know was sold out across the country because I struggled to get one myself um I used to hire them from the uni while I was at uni and then I was really keen to get one to resume cycling back at home um, during the lockdown, but they were all sold out. And I think that's amazing. I think that's so cool that people were taking to active travel and just getting outside. Like I know the weather permitted that because it was super sunny, but it's just generally, I mean, so many friends as well have said, um, oh Mel I've just I've just taken up cycling or I'm starting to cycle around London or something like that and that's such a nice feeling um, because I know how much happiness it can bring people associated with that is um, enjoying less pollution and fewer cars on the road along with with active travel we can see that life doesn't have to be driven in a certain way just because it always has been done like that mm. so 
with less pollution, more children could play outside and people have um, been walking much more. And I think, yeah, that's, that's again really nice because it's perhaps, like you were saying earlier, allowing people to pause from such a fast pace of life and like re regain what people know they or hadn't realized maybe before what they could love so much where obviously it's a much harder time at the moment because we're in these really dark months um but we're still able to go out on snow days and or sledge and um it was nice to see everyone out but still keeping to themselves of course because of the pandemic but we can still be um we're all treasuring and having the chance to treasure these really um like what's the word raw moments I guess with each other and our families or friends um yeah I mean <laughs> Pippa and I a final or another behavior thing is the way that we've all had to adapt to working from home and um doing everything via zoom and this is kind of particularly resonates with me I think because Pippa and I have been recording these podcasts um, throughout the pandemic and we do it all via Zoom but um, we've actually only seen each other what once in the last yeah. year um, bearing in mind we used to see each other probably twice a week in Manchester before the pandemic so that's perhaps a night like th that's really sad I'd love to see Piva but it's nice <laughs> to know that we can do everything that we don't need to rely on um, travel across the world in order to undertake business meetings or attend conferences like we we have proven that they can work from our living rooms mm -hmm. um, and that's really nice I think um, yeah uh, of course the lockdown how we can see has been pretty financially and mentally exhausting for all of us we're not making light of the impacts of the pandemic on families who've lost other family member members or lost jobs but it's really important to highlight the the few silver linings that we do have and learn from the behaviors that we've adapted to and lessons that we've learned yeah everything you're saying links with um a quote that was was in the National Geographic recently and I actually wrote a blog blog post about this article which you can find on our website because it had such an impact on me this article um, and the quote is if Covid makes a lasting difference it won't be because it briefly stopped traffic it will be because the, the whole experience including noticing birds and breathing cleaner air changed our culture. So I think it's just, you know, our behavior has changed and we've realized that we can have, you know, there are some positives to take from the pandemic, like rushing around 24 seven, not really taking a moment to appreciate anything isn't good. Mm. And neither we've, you know, we might not have realized that our towns and cities were polluted until the air pollution went. And then we saw how lovely it was. And we felt that sense of community when you go walking down your road and there's loads of other people going for a walk and it might be a tiny thing. And yeah, we don't want to make light of the, like the horrendousness that has been this pandemic. But I think there is really an opportunity for us to kind of remember this and remember mm. how it felt to connect with nature and slow down and read books in the garden and look at the snow and look at the birds and just feel like happiness from those things it um it, it links very much back with what we you said at the beginning about the notion of a recovery 
Um, yeah. Obviously, we can use, well, hopefully we can use the pandemic um, as an opportunity to reassess the way we did things, um, not just as a, at a governmental level, but at, at an individual level as well. Um, and on this basis, like what the most positive things you can take or that you feel that you've learned um, in the world or like for yourself, Piffa, um, or in this yeah. pandemic? Well, I think like personally, it's definitely, you know, obviously I miss socializing with friends in person and I miss like I live in Manchester a lot of my friends live down south I miss traveling to see friends and I miss just that like human to human interaction but I think it's made me realize that you know like I can achieve stuff at home like we've launched this podcast thanks to the pandemic and having that extra free time has allowed so much creativity mm-hmm. and that you kind of don't need to always say yes to every like social event because it kind of drains you (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah, it's like having no FOMO was so refreshing for me like I'm so bad with that (laughs) and it's like um and it's just made you realize you know to do things that you actually want to do and to yeah appreciate the smaller things like I I at the moment I meet my friend one of my friends for a walk every week and we get a coffee and it's like the highlight of my whole week and it's the tiniest thing but you know and it's just like these smaller things that we previously would have done in a rush and taken for granted it's like slowing down I think is a really good thing for me personally um, and it's allowed me to do things I would never have been able to do um, but more like globally I think there has been definitely some positives to take from 2020 and the beginning of 2021 like obviously the major one is Joe Biden being elected replacing Trump mm. um, and his promises to kind of rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement immediately and his pledges like with a climate fund and like there's opportunity there to kind of reverse some of the damage that was caused by the Trump administration and I think that kind of gives all of us a sense of hope because you know all it really takes is a few brave politicians and a lot can be achieved Um, And we also saw things in the UK, like Boris Johnson introduced his 10 point plan for environment action. And that included initiatives such as the ban on the sale of petrol and diesel cars by 2030. And I think, you know, like I'll be the first first to criticize Boris Johnson, but I think there's no denying that's a really ambitious and commendable pledge. And I kind of look forward to seeing how that comes and like the infrastructure that that's built and the changes that that happens but like it's important to highlight these things because otherwise it can just feel a bit like oh politicians never do enough and these are two big things yeah Um, was that brought forward then so had it been at it yeah 2035 um, okay so it's been brought forward by five years yes we've got to do yeah exactly but sadly there's a but as always um at the same time we've seen adamant acceleration the push of hs2 going ahead um and like this is despite campaigns and people you know proving why it's not necessary um like it was in the news this week about protesters digging in a hundred foot tunnel underneath underneath a park where hs2 like threatens to destroy ancient ancient woodlands um and i think you know as we were saying, like, of course, it's amazing to have this connection between the North and the South and this, like, ability to travel across country. 
but like the pandemic has shown us we don't really need that like we can work from home and like do we need to be able to travel within two minutes like actually what we need is to make our current train systems better and more affordable mm. um like hs2 no doubt whenever it's finished will be unaffordable for like <laughs> us and it just seems like yeah it just seems like I know the Wildlife Trust, um, who we'll speak to later in this podcast, have done a lot of campaigning, kind of showing why the negatives it will have to nature and like carbon emissions, just it's not really necessary. I was just going to say as well with HS2, all it does or what it says to me is that you're just um, pulling everyone again, yet again, to London rather than investing in Um, other cities around the country and I think that can be really detrimental to well it definitely is detrimental to all of the the prosperity and the prospects that other cities could bring to our nation and perhaps um, we could say it also uh, deepens a divide between the north and south rather than actually bringing us together at all. Definitely like why isn't there investment in towards you know like better bus routes in smaller northern towns or connections between Manchester and Liverpool and Manchester and Sheffield and like improving those connections rather than this like need for cross-country bullet train bullet train when kind of we've shown that if you needed to go to London for the day it could actually probably be done on Zoom and you know the two and a half hour train Manchester where I live to London it's not it's not too bad yeah like it's I think it's just a project that hasn't been fought thought through um I would argue hasn't been thought through enough and yeah there's lots of other ways that that money could be invested in much more like beneficial ways Mm. I mean yeah also another really like heartbreaking I think judgment was when earlier this year the Supreme Court overturned a judgment that the third runway at Heathrow was illegal due to its climate contributions so at first this judgment um which was made in February was amazing was really well celebrated and it was the first time the law had kind of stood by the fact that like a a project's climate contributions means it's unlawful and the fact that this has been overturned I think just like is so defeating and really like sad and I think it begs the more general question of yes there's this potential for a green recovery but in fact will the economic decline from Covid and the complications due to Brexit, just push this further growth instead of rethinking things and... Yeah, actually making the reassessment that um, the pause of the pandemic grants us, like it's, it's a free it's a free go at doing things another way. Um, mm. yeah, exactly. yeah. And I think that point of growth is really important and like it's something we touched on in episode five with Curtis, but it's something I've come across loads in my work and I've been thinking about loads as well because I just think the incessant need for growth is kind of what got us to this position in the pandemic in the first place like you know enroaching on nature more 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 like traveling quicker all of this and it's just like yeah we had a chance to pause our growth and just sit back and relax and it's like I really wish we would harness that um And there's a book that's amazing by Kate Roweth called Donor Economics, where she talks a lot about this. Um, And there's a quote I wrote down from it, which I think really uh, says everything. It's, the point isn't that all growth is bad. Some countries still need much more of it, while others don't. 
The point is that growth shouldn't be the point. And I think resonating with that as well is uh, the idea or the, the fact that we've been really investing in community vibes all throughout the pandemic, like we were, you were saying about going for a walk and seeing everyone around and bringing everything back closer to us and not about escaping and going somewhere else and flying around the world in uh, a matter of minutes. We actually need to harness everything and, and not be growing, but be coming together and uh, investing in our communities. I was going to say on that basis um, there's clearly so much more that needs to be done Um, so of course politicians can claim to be acting but in reality it's far from the case and I I think Pippa and I at Earthrights just feel that there doesn't seem to have been the level of urgency by the government about the climate crisis like clearly it was understood with the coronavirus pandemic But like you said, the climate crisis is equally important in that regard and will have as big, if not far bigger of an impact. So, yeah, as we've as we've been saying, we can't just be relying on politicians and policymakers to harness this green recovery. Um, We really need to enact it within ourselves. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I guess that's the whole point of the podcast, like we're just trying to show that yeah, it might seem on a, on a political global scale, it might seem quite bleak, but there are lessons we can learn and we just have to keep hold of those and remember it. And that's all part of the movement. Um, so we also recently spoke to James Melling, a campaign officer at the Cheshire Wildlife Trust. Um, James does a lot of work to inspire to protect wildlife while also working with local councils to petition to get stronger laws in place to protect the environment. Um, And we just wanted to get his opinion on the green recovery. So my first question, obviously, as we at the start of lockdown, we kind of saw air pollution levels decline. um, Everyone was appreciating nature. And there was kind of the strong feeling in the media and just like amongst communities that kind of COVID could provide an opportunity for change when it comes to the environment and environmental issues. Um, And do you think that that is possible? And do you think that those feelings are still the case and that we can kind of harness the pandemic in a good way to create long-term change? Or do you think kind of we're just living in a bubble to have those those thoughts? Yeah, I think the pandemic has really shined a spotlight um, on all the environmental issues that we're facing at the moment. Um, And I think a lot of that really is to do with the fact that people have become a little bit more connected to nature. Um, Because obviously we've had the lockdowns and everything. So... um, People have looked for places nearby that they perhaps weren't aware of, like local parks, like little hidden walks and footpaths. And I think in doing that, people really have become more integrated with the nature around them. Um, And we tend to find that when people are connected to nature like that, they start to care more um, because it matters more to them and they've got like an interest in it. And that means they'll more likely stand up for nature as well. Um, So I really do think that from the pandemic, yes, we've got a lot of momentum um, behind the environmental um, agenda at the moment. Um, But what we really need to see now is that translate into what our politicians, um, so our MPs and councillors are sort of saying, because it's no just it's no good as just saying that we want all this to be done. And we need to sort of see the policies and the legislation in place to make um, nature's recovery happen. 
obviously the Cheshire Wildlife Trust has kind of done a lot of work campaigning against HS2, which from my understanding is going to be going through some of like um, protect, protected land by the Wildlife Trust. So I kind of just wanted to discuss this a bit with you. I know it's a broad topic, um, but like what your views are and kind of do you think we like big transport projects like this are necessary, especially now with more people working from home? Yeah, so um, HS2 is impacting us in both phase uh, 2A and 2B. Um, it's going to impact quite a lot of our land as well. Um, so, in fact, what's just happened is our CEO has signed a letter to the Secretary of State um, asking him to like look into the current issues surrounding HS2. Because we're finding, well, down south in particular with phase one, um, a lot of the promises and assurances we've received from HS2 are just not being met. And a lot of our sister trusts are finding there's quite a lot of issues and with the project down there. So we're really calling on the Secretary of State at the moment to look into these issues and investigate what's going on. Um, and we hope that by the time the line reaches up here, we're not going to be facing those issues because it would be a disaster for wildlife. Um, in terms of whether we need HS2 or not, I don't think it's the position of the Wildlife Trust to really determine that. Um, our stance is that we don't oppose development if it's done in the correct way. And I think that's really the caveat with HS2, that HS2 isn't being done in a way that manages the ecological risk in the right way. Um, we're seeing in the Environment Bill um, an obligation for developments to replace more biodiversity. Uh, so if some of it's lost, they have to provide even more than what was originally there to compensate for that. Um, but even in the Environment Bill, major infrastructure projects like HS2 are exempt, um, which is ridiculous really, because um, these are some of the most damaging projects that we face across the country. Um, and it seems just ludicrous that these projects are allowed to just get away with what we call net zero, uh, well, net loss, no net loss in biodiversity, because there's a real sort of lack of transparency and it's really proving hard to hold them to account. So we really want them to, at the very least, just meet the targets that they said they would. Um, but that seems to be proving difficult as it is. Um, and another more uh, more specific question to Cheshire. So both Cheshire East and Cheshire West councils declared a climate emergency in May last year. And in um, your in your view and the views of the Wildlife Trust, do you think this has achieved anything? And what more needs to be done um, specifically in Cheshire? Um, I think yeah, it's definitely shone a light on some of the environmental issues we're facing. Um, but what I think we need to remember is that we're not just facing a climate crisis, we're facing an ecological crisis as well. Um, and we've just seen the um, presentation from Cheshire West on their sort of climate strategy. Um, and while it's positive to see some of the steps they're taking and the enthusiasm to create change, what we need them to do is integrate the climate crisis and the ecological crisis together. So they need to be considering the two hand in hand um, right the way through that strategic plan. Um, because the two are so interlinked at the end of the day, um, nature is such a key um, component in fighting climate change and it provides some of the cheapest solutions um, to some of the problems we face because of climate change like flooding um, and then storing carbon as well and um, so we need both councils really to start integrating those two strategies and um, we are working with both at the moment um, to try and help them with that and just give them a bit of support and advice and um, so as long as we keep on doing that I think we should start seeing the progress we need. So based on all of this, Mel, can you tell us what we can actually do to 
push for this green recovery within ourselves and what are the kind of key takeaways from this pandemic and from this podcast? Yeah, so I think a big one that we'll uh, look at more in series two, where it's the campaign for ecocide. So making um, environmental crimes part of the criminal law. And there's been a big environment, a big international movement with getting ecocide into international law. But um, we think that we need to make this campaign also a national one. Um, And any petitions that you can sign will obviously link them to the podcast notes but um, I think that's a really important one because of the fact that it highlights the severity of damaging the environment and makes it uh, a very human uh, it it brings in the human to the consequences um, because you're essentially saying you're basically making a you are making it a crime um, and I think that's a, an easy one for us to include into the criminal law. Um, another thing that we can do is, uh, in terms of campaigning, is getting the Climate and Ecological Emergency Bill passed in Parliament. And this was, is a bill that is aiming to ensure that the UK government will pay its fair and, prof- and proper share in, in limiting global warming, whilst also actively conserving the natural world. So what we would suggest is writing to your local MP to ask them to support this bill. And to do this, you can visit the Climate and Ecological Emergency website. um, And there's a whole host of information about how you can go about doing this. But we really think that active participation in that sense is something that you can do from your desk Um, when we're in lockdown so really pushing these forward in your local districts is is important another thing that you can do um, and that perhaps I I would like to think I've done myself over the last year is rethinking and re-evaluating your priorities and in doing so encourage others to do the same so just don't forget the importance of your consumer actions. And I think we said this quite a lot in Curtis in the episode with Curtis, like as, as a consumer, you can have a real impact on the trend and like that in the end can encourage government to make a change. So you could easily be boycotting brands or avoiding fast fashion. Like we were suggesting on the second episode, you could switch up your diet, like, do the veganuary movement, etc., and uh, a really obvious one and something that you can do. Obviously, coming into spring more is using active travel when possible. So get on your bike, <laughs> go for a walk, and th- and yeah, reassess. Do you really need that thing? Like, do you really need to nip to Tesco for one ingredient, or could you use what you've already got? Um, and if you are going to go to Tesco, could you link it in with a walk you're doing already that day? Um, yeah, Pippa, what do you think? I think those consumer behaviours is definitely something we want to highlight because not only does it give us like a sense of autonomy to make change, but it, yeah, it definitely shouldn't be, you know, that should be highlighted because like, as you said, Mel, we can influence trends and like, if a lot of us come together, it can have a really big impact. Um, And I think also educating yourself and helping to educate others is a really kind of key way to become more engaged with the environmental movement so this can be through reading books um, following informative accounts on your social media 
listening to podcasts like Earthrights and then sharing them widely with friends and family and colleagues. But I think most importantly is to share this information with the people who are less engaged. Like we don't want to just have this echo chamber, um, which I know I'm guilty of, like having friends um, and family who are equally passionate. And so you feel like the whole world is equally passionate, but you realize that you're kind of just in a bubble of people who agree with you. Um, so I think it's really important to kind of share these things widely with maybe older people in your family, older generations who may have different views or, you know, people that just like to be argumentative with you. Like it's all part of the conversation to debate and discuss these kind of things. Um, and also, as Mel said, becoming politically active, like writing to your local MP, maybe about something big like the climate and ecological bill or about an issue you're passionate about. Like, yeah. Yeah, actually, um, that that reminds me, I, I ended up writing to my MP for the first time last year, I think on the back of the fact that people around my neighbourhood were also doing it to do with coronavirus, and it seemed like it was the first time they had as well. But let's, uh, let's bear in mind, like the MP is meant to represent you and your community, and they, they will listen. So I emailed um, Laura Farris, who is my local MP, about um, making the roads and the pavement safer for um, active travel. So I'm a keen cyclist and clearly, as we've already demonstrated, loads of other people were becoming, getting, using bikes more. And I realized that it was so unsafe to be going around um, my local area on the bike. And like people have, have had this sort of, well, people in cars have this really, uh, demonizing attitude towards bikes and pedestrians and this really scared me so I got in touch with my local MP to say look if you if you need people to be not in their cars because of because we need to uh, tackle the environmental crisis that we're in then you also need to combine that with making the road safer and she got back to me and um within the year now she's um and obviously with all of the um, work of her council and um, the local area but they've now come back to us and within this year they've now uh, introduced and launched a questionnaire um, involving all the all of us residents about what we need to see in terms of making the roads safer and where we'd like proper cycle paths and on what are the most used routes to get to work so when people start going back to work where where do there need to be proper cycle lanes um, rather than just ones that are ad hocly attached to the road which are ridiculously dangerous so yeah don't be afraid they they are just another human and they, they want to, <laughs> it's within their own interest to um, be responding and giving back to the community and that they're there for a reason. So based on this, I decided to speak to Caroline Culver to find out what my local council was doing about the green recovery from lockdown and what they've been up to regarding the, um, the climate crisis. As the Green Party councillor at West Parks, um, I just wondered what what had been the long term approach to combating climate change, and whether this changed or for the better or for the worse during the pandemic. So, in July 2019, the council unanimously de declared a climate emergency. 
So before the three of us were elected, we did a public petition calling for a climate emergency. And when we submitted it, we were told um, it was hyperbole. That was the actual word they used. Um, But after we were elected, they decided that they were going to put forward a motion for a climate emergency and every single councillor backed that, which was great. So there is now a um, strategy that the council has put together and they are in the process of putting together a delivery plan, which will look in a lot of detail at the different objectives that they've got. So that's all kinds of things from active travel. So in improving walking and cycling. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the things that they've tried to do is to pedestrianise the main street through Newbury. But unfortunately, they've now decided that the traffic can go through again in the mornings and evenings. And that's something that we've opposed because we think it's much nicer to have that pedestrianised, especially during COVID when people are trying to public, um, socially distance. Do you feel that the um, concrete action in the planning stages at the moment is is going to actually get us to reach net zero? Or do you think that's quite a, an a, unreasonable target at the moment it is going to be very ambitious because obviously the council only have control over what the council have control over they can't necessarily decarbonize the entire district but we're all working with other people around the district to try and reach that goal so for example there are organizations like west berkshire climate action network Mm -hmm. and they've been campaigning to get more solar panels on the houses and more insulation for houses that kind of thing So any of these national initiatives that are happening, they will seize upon them and see what they can do with it in local area. Um, And we've got Friends of the Earth, we've got Greenpeace, we've got people who are doing a lot of recycling and they collect for TerraCycle. So there's all kinds of things that are going on and that is all being encouraged. But we obviously need more and more people to get involved. Um, And also we need national government to do more. So we, we do as much as we can at a local level, but it needs to be a national and international initiative. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in that sense, um, I I just wonder, do you feel that you as the council and you as a councillor have enough power or would you like to have more power at a local government level? Obviously, we have quite a centralised government in England, but for something like the environment, do you think there could be room for more powers to be assigned to local governments? Absolutely. Um, The government a few years ago rode back um, on its uh, home insulation. When you do planning applications, we used to be able to set much more stringent levels for home insulation Mm. um, and the release of energy in homes. Um, And that was rode back on and we can't do that anymore. So we can only set through planning law certain levels that developers have to meet. So the government could do more to restore those sort of powers for local authorities through the planning process. Mm. Uh, One of the things we're concerned about is there's a white paper to change the planning regulations. And we're really worried that that might undermine local councils efforts to ensure environmental standards as well so it remains to be seen what happens through that but that's one of the concerns that we as a council raised Mm. uh, with the government so we we await the, the government's you know final draft of that paper I think that this quote just summarises this whole episode really perfectly. And when I was doing a bit of research for this episode, um, yeah, I came across this quote and I was like, that says everything we're trying to say in a condensed couple of words. Um, And it's by Margaret Mead, who's an American cultural anthropologist and author. And she said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has.
If you are interested or concerned by any of the issues raised during this podcast, then please get in touch at contact at earthrights.co.uk or visit our website www.earthrights.co.uk. You can find full recordings of all of the episodes on most podcast platforms or on the Earthrights website, referenced in the show notes. We host a blog on there too, as well as recommendations and other information. Please also join in on the journey by following our Twitter and Instagram accounts at earthrights underscore. If you would like to be involved in an episode of the Earthrights podcast, then please also get in touch. This Earthrights podcast was hosted, produced and edited by us. Music and sounds were specially made for Earthrights by the Mowgli Wild Boys, who are currently recording a new LP at Circuit Studios in Nottingham. Please follow their Instagram and Facebook at Mowgli Wild Boys.